Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached when I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom. I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 371, Disturbances for Wild Turkeys, with Marcus Lashley. And I am your co-host, and the guy who is, well, I should say was, two days late, and two dollars short in Kansas. Mm, migration must have hit right when you left, but I'm the guy who's fired up for this week's episode. Oh, a little play on words there. I just had to have a pun, man. It's too good. It's too good to pass up the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> Did the ducks show up after you left? <laughs> well, there were a few ducks that were there when we were there. We never even waterfowl hunted. Oh, really? They just weren't weren't enough to make it worthwhile or you just were busy deer hunting we were busy deer hunting so we actually i guess i was mistaken about the plan i was under the assumption we were bird hunting in the mornings and deer hunting in the afternoons but what the plan was was to deer hunt in the mornings deer hunt in the afternoons until we all killed deer and then then bird bird hunt so the deer killing went a little slow Mm. 
you know, it doesn't help. We said it was good in 75 degrees, you know. One day that we were hunting, it was 80 degrees. (laughs) A record high. That gets the deer moving, huh? Oh, they get fired up, especially, you know, a big 275, 300-pound whitetail. They get fired up about 80 degrees. Yeah. Yeah, he likes to really sweat it out. It's like he's walking in a sauna. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, y'all still killed some, though, didn't you? I did. I killed a deer, and I was two days was late. Beautiful buck. Yeah, I was really pretty deer. I was two days late killing the monster that the guy who hunted that same blind after me uh, killed. Oh, man. I mean, well. a monster. Main beams almost touching the front. The G3s on this deer have got to be 16 inches long. Oh, man. I mean... Was who had longer back straps, yours or his? I don't know. Oh, I mean that's the key question there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably have a good point. <laughs> I didn't think about no, that. No, that's crazy. So he hunted the same blind as you, but did the guy just send you a picture of it or something? Like, hey, yeah. this was in your stand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He just was rubbing it in. Oh, thanks. Could could have gone my whole life without knowing that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I would have been perfectly well. happy. But no, yeah. well, know, I'm not envious of the guy. I'm actually very excited for him because it is a beautiful deer. And my deer is wow. very nice. So I'm not, you know, not jealous. I'm not upset. Yeah, yeah beautiful buck you got, I saw. Yeah. yeah. little um, 10 point with the kicker on one side and almost kicker on the other side. So yeah. a big Sweet. old heavy I'm deer. I'm sure y'all had a fun time. Y'all shot a pheasant too, at least one I saw a picture of. Yeah, we did get one pheasant. Oh, that was, that was the pheasant? That was the pheasant. <laughs> So we feathered out while you were deer hunting or <laughs> we feathered quite a few more pheasants, but uh, yeah, they're they, tough jokers, man. They are. They you are. have got to smoke them to bring the, or, you know, shoot them pretty quick when they get up so they don't get out because they can get up and out pretty fast. Yeah. And you know, it's my first experience pheasant hunting. And mm-hmm. so that was all new to me, but it was a lot of fun, a lot of walking, Yeah. and watching the dogs work is just, I mean, it's poetry in motion, man. That's Oh, yeah. The dog work with upland hunting, is, I mean, that's it, you know, and good eating as well. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Watching the dog work with upland, that's, that's the dream, you know. Yes, indeed. So, well, cool. Good trip. Overall, very good yeah. trip. The, Excellent. You'll, you'll love this because you can appreciate it. The trip out there and the trip back, not so bueno. Ah, yeah. Were you flying my arch nemesis, United Airlines? I flew your other arch nemesis, American Airlines. Ah, dynamic duo of airline delays. Debauchery. That's what, <laughs> what that did was. They do to you? <laughs> so in Birmingham, I'm leaving home. My flight leaves Birmingham Airport at 5:30 in the morning. My mm-hmm. sweet sweet lovely bride gets Gets up up. at 3 30 in the morning drives me to the airport i get my bags checked sitting in the terminal waiting on waiting to board we board we sit there sit there sit there we have let yet to leave the gate and the pilot comes on and says well we got a little problem this morning it seems that refueling put the fuel in the wrong tank (laughs) i'm like what you can you can transfer fuel from one tank to another on an airplane automatically. They have pumps that do that. What? What? 
So <laughs> we're sitting there and he says, we're going to, we're going to make that transfer now while we sit here. So we'll be a little bit delayed leaving. Well, my, I had zero time really in, in Dallas to make mm-hmm. my connection. So it became apparent at that point that my connection was missed. Yeah, I was going to miss it. Mm-hmm. So not a big deal. You know, we can, the airlines can work with me. We'll get that straightened out. It just is what it is. You can't get all worked up over it. So remember, my flight was supposed to leave at 530. At about yeah. 630, the pilot says, well, we got a bigger issue now. We can't transfer the fuel from one tank to another right now it's going to take a little longer than what we anticipated and we have a flight attendant who has (laughs) an hour to figure that out (laughs) yes and we have a flight attendant who is nearing the end of her shift and can't work overtime so we have to have a new flight attendant to transfer to this plane so we're going to ask you guys to deplane at 9 30 they come over the pa in the airport and say okay well we're ready to board, but you guys are all going to have new seat assignments. So you need to come up to the desk so we can assign you new seats. Holy crap. So here go 250, 275 people to the desk lined up to get new seats assigned. And they just decided to tell us that right before we boarded. Anyway, I was supposed to be in Wichita at 10 a.m. And I got to Wichita at it was two right at two o'clock and then i wait for my bags oh god (laughs) they're still on the plane with no fuel (laughs) and i wait and the my suitcase shows up so i just don't have guns and i go to the baggage claim office and stand in line there because there's three other people there ahead of me finally the lady who I'm I'm not knocking her because she was filling in for someone and I it's obvious it was not her department. Her yeah. You know, she did not know what she was doing. And I'm I'm forgiving of ignorance. That's the airline's fault for not cross training. That's mm-hmm. not her fault. So I was very, very patient. And she fortunately there was a guy from United, they shared a, a office, United and American in Wichita. And so the guy with United actually starts looking at her computer and they find my bag or my gun case in Dallas. Nice. And they tell me that it will be here. It is on the airplane and it will be in Wichita at 4 p.m. <laughs> Excellent. I, I looked them square in the eyes, both of them. And I said, are you 100 sure that that bag is on that flight and will be in Wichita at four o'clock this evening and he said the dude said yes I am 100% sure and I said now look I'm going to ask you one more time and it's not because I'm being a a a-hole but it's because I'm going to go sit in the bar down here at the airport and I'm going to drink from now until four (laughs) o'clock And when four o'clock rolls around, if my bag's not on that plane, I can't promise I'm going to be as nice as I am right now because I would have had a few drinks. Oh, no. He started laughing. He said, well, if you would bring me a bottle down here, (laughs) and I am telling you, your bag is on that airplane, 100%. So, fortunately, 
four o'clock rolls around, my bag is there. So fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, we were thinking we would be at the lodge around, well, originally around two, and we ended up getting to the lodge around seven because of yeah. all of the delays. See, Delta, you would have had your eye mask on with a, a nice cool drink and a snack flying probably early. You would have been there early. Yeah. And, you know, probably full body massage at some point through there. Yeah. And, you know, they would have probably complimentary, you know, giving you an Uber or something just for, just because that that's how it usually goes comparatively. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I will say this, when we got on the flight in Birmingham, finally to leave the new flight attendant that came on the, on the plane, when I got on, there were, there were maybe three or four people behind me. You know, I, I ended up getting in line to get my new seat assignments pretty late, so there were just a handful of people behind me. So I get on the plane, and the dude, I'm walking towards my seat, which is in the back of the plane, and the dude says, what's your seat? And I said, "I, you know, 19C or whatever it was. And so he looks up at the aisle right beside us, and he says, how about 13 right here? There was no one sitting in 13, so I got the whole row of seats to myself, and there was a maybe... 20 21 year old kid behind me and he looks at that dude and says what's your seat and he says i don't you know 22 f and the guy says sit right here and he points in first class and that kid got to sit in first class i thought that was pretty cool so anyway it ended up not being too bad we had a great trip and you know you just have to expect that kind of stuff is going to happen when you're traveling it's just yeah, it's part of it yeah it's part of it. And then, you know, you you can't get upset either with the fact that I could have gotten up at 3.30 in the morning, gotten in my truck, driven all the way to the lodge, and gotten there oh. at the exact same time as we actually oh, yeah. got there. That's, again, that's why I drive most everywhere, unless it's, you know, if it's over 15 hours, I'm flying. But. Yeah. <laughs> I could have driven to to Nevada where I went faster than oh, my no flight doubt. got me there. <laughs> no doubt. And I ended up, I did drive back from Colorado. So. Yeah, you did. Because you <laughs> would still be in Denver. I'm pretty sure they still snowed in in Denver. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, cool. all that's behind us. We are, what, 112 days and 20 hours away from turkey season. I am going to have some flights this year, I think, but hopefully they go better than what you just experienced. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're 106, 21 hours, 3 minutes, and 57 minutes. Three and a half months, Cameron. It's here. It's here. I mean, it's it's right here on, on the cusp. Yep. We got holidays and stuff before then, so it'll it'll be here quick. I, I cannot freaking wait. Yes, and. Indeed. I'm going to go ahead and put the favor of the week in the intro. Arkansas just put out an article showing their turkey stamps, how their voluntary turkey stamps made over $100,000 for them. Take that link online. Find it. It's it's. Uh, let me find it real quick. AGFC.com, and the title of it's Quail and Turkey Stamps Worth 10 Times Their Value in Habitat. Go get that link. Email that to every commissioner you can think of in your state and tell them we need to do this. Because I have done that with Tennessee, and my commissioner was like, this is amazing. I'm 
I've emailed it already out to everybody. We're going to make this happen. And so do that. If we flood them with that information, I think we'll get some more of these turkey stamps going and raise some money for turkeys. Yeah. There's your favorite of the week in the intro. I, I don't want somebody to miss it. Yeah. Very good. I like that. Yeah. Hey, definitely let's, do it. Let's do one other thing before we jump in and, and introduce our guest and get on with the interview. Okay. The intro outro is running a little longer than I wanted because I, I haven't shut up yet, but <laughs> because the interview is awesome. We, we want to get into that soon, yeah. but let's do this. I'm putting you on the spot. Name mm-hmm. Santa Claus is coming soon. Okay. Name three things that you hope to find underneath the tree this year from Santa. All right. Cellular trail cam. That's a, cause we got this new place and it's over an hour away and I'd like to, you know, I'm not be able to get up there and check my cameras. So I'm actually yep. asking for a couple of them and I bought one. I'm hoping to get five total. Cool. So cellular trail cam and we're going to deploy those in February, March and kind of take a census of how many gobblers are on the property because they should all be together. And then we can kind of set a property quota on how many we should kill off that is my kind of how I'm thinking of it. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Man, what else did I ask for? When you went and sat in Santa's lap. Turkey books is, I mean, that's like a, every year that's always a, if you find a turkey book, buy it. I want it. You know? <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's always one. You know, I have my mom, I have her looking for Jack Dudley's book at all times. I I tell her all the time, you know, I just keep thinking one of these days at like a yard sale, she's going to come across it and be able to get it. But it's possible. Very unlikely. Um, So turkey books, cellular trail cam, and probably some shotgun shells. But I don't know that I can expect to get those because they're impossible to find. So I'm glad I bought my turkey shells last year in bulk. Yeah. My Longbeard XRs, you know, the number five Magnums is what shoots sweet out of my gun. So that's, that's pretty much what I'm going for. And I bought myself, I'll I'll call this a Christmas present. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I found it on, on, uh, online. I think it's an old product, but it's a sling for your gun. And you know, that thing you wear on your knee, you call it your tumor. It has one of those attached to the sling. And so, because I always do that with my sling anyway. When I'm sitting there with my gun on my knee, mm-hmm. I put the sling below the gun, just kind of pad it a little bit. Well, this thing has like a U-shape where it fits over your knee and then holds the gun for you too. It's just like that thing you strap around your leg, but it's on the sling. I was like, heck, that's pretty cool. I'm going to get one, see how I like it. That's cool. You haven't you haven't yeah. test driven it yet? No, it hasn't arrived yet. Oh, you know how shipping is these days. It, I hope it's here by turkey season. Yeah, I'm I'm sure Brandon <laughs> will get it here pretty quickly for you. <laughs> Let's go, Brandon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, but what about you? What are you asking for this year? So, I need some new briar pants. You know, my briar pants that I have, I've got quite a few miles on them, and I like them. But I still wear the same size waist, but they have shrunk. So I need I need new briar drawers. But yeah, that's sure. that's not so much a turkey thing; it's just a hunting thing. So not a big deal there. Shotgun shells. I've already asked for those, and I I saw a box get delivered at the house one day from Apex. So yeah, you guys, if you don't really do any bird hunting outside of turkeys 
you need to go ahead and get some shotgun shells because you thought they were hard to find last year and you thought be. they were hard to find the year before that. Good luck this year. Better get on with the, the buying of shotgun shells. So, and I, I anticipate buying a couple more boxes when I go to Nashville. So that'll be, that'll be cool. Yes. Assuming they have some. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. And then I think I need a new set of camo. You know, I like that duck camp pattern that you wear. And I think I may ask Santa to bring me a, a new set of camo Ooh. duck camp. Oh, man. I'm, and I'm not sponsored by duck camp, so I'm not saying this for any other reason than I like it. The Vantage pants are freaking awesome. Yeah. I literally, like, they're the only pants I have that I wear hunting. And when I get home, I, I just keep them on, like, to lounge around on the couch and stuff. They're so yeah. freaking comfortable, and they you like, can't tear them either. I don't know what they're made out of, but I've you know crossing barbed wire fences or or through briar patches and stuff. They do not tear. It's freaking mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. So I really really suggest those. But yeah, that's awesome, man. I, I think you'll it. The pattern at home it just looks interesting. But like you said, when we were in the woods together, you're like, man, that stuff looks good. You know. Yeah. <laughs> it blends. Tend with trees really well in the spring yeah yeah it does that vertical you know line pattern kind of like bottom land is you know so it's pretty cool yeah i think you'll like it well cool well, that was fun yeah yeah well, let's so. let's hop in here and get some land management tips from marcus lashley at dr disturbance on instagram he is the freaking man when it comes to burning and disturbing the soil to help turkeys and all kind of critters but we're focused on turkeys so I think y'all enjoy this. If, if you have land or, or help a buddy with land or lease land, you might catch some ideas here that you could do between now and turkey season to help your turkey f- flock out, which we all need to do. Yes, indeed. Well, let's so, jump in. Well, I've been rambling too much. Let's jump in and get it on. <laughs> all right, man. See you on the other side. Hello? Marcus. Hey, how's it going? This is Andy hey, Galliano. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Good. Cameron's hey. on the line with us. Yeah, this is hey, Cameron. Cameron. How's it going? As a lake, so it's no brainer. Yeah, pretty well set up to burn. The issue I have is I've got a bunch of short leaf pines on it, and they don't seem to drop as much straw as mm-hmm. loblollies or long leaves do. And so, you know, I, I generally have to wait three years for a good burn. Mm-hmm. But if I wait four, I can get a, a real good one. But it's been, for me, has been primarily just opening up the understory. And, you know, I haven't really seen a, a lot of growth from native grasses and that kind of thing. But I think it's got a lot to do with when I'm burning instead of mm-hmm. just burning. Yeah, so, and it, yeah, and the amount of light penetrating and, you know, yeah. the other uh, productivity factors might play a role too. Yeah, there's yeah. very little light getting to the ground mm-hmm. in there so but, Marcus, yeah, it's a lot of fun i'm gonna yeah. ask i'm just gonna kind of we're gonna do a project almost kind of i think with this because okay. i i have never burned any land on purpose in my life <laughs> i like the <laughs> caveat on purpose yeah. so but i'm wanting to because so i i have grown up and the land we've had the privilege of owning and hunting has been bottom land 
hardwoods. Mm -hmm. And I have some questions about that too. But Mm -hmm. we just got some land that is upland pine, you know, ridges Mm -hmm. here. And I'm in Tennessee. And I know, I think you come to Tennessee, seems like often. I feel like I've seen some stuff on your Instagram where you've been in Tennessee burning. Yeah. Yeah, Well, uh, so I I got my master's at the University of Tennessee and my, my, mentor craig harper is at the university of tennessee and i go up there frequently to visit him and we have some experiments going on around the south where uh, you may have seen some stuff recently where we were posting uh pictures of some of the burns we were doing some of those were in tennessee yeah yeah i think maybe that was what i noticed but anyway i'm just i want to kind of learn more about it you seem like the guy to do it dr disturbance on instagram <laughs> so, so I yeah, thought, that's resonated you know, with people <laughs> i'm sure there's other listeners out there maybe have, you know one of our 10 listeners out there may have never burned before <laughs> and may want to so you know we'll sure. do this for him yeah. but i guess one of the first questions that you deal with turkeys a lot right I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a primary personal interest and research interest. Because you're, you're a turkey hunter, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Since I okay. could walk, I was. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So I love that. I love when the, <laughs> you know, ecologist or biologist is also a, a hunter of the game they're trying to propagate. I think that's a great thing. I, I think a lot of people underappreciate how much that has driven what we uh, you know as a researcher what we're doing mm-hmm. you know for me that has been the the driving factor for me to choose to get into the field but also driven the questions and also gave me the background knowledge to even know that the questions were needed you know the, mm-hmm. all those things sort of stem from that and I get to go out and, and uh think about well I wonder what makes more turkeys, and then I get to go actually try to do that and in an experimental framework. So I really have uh, been blessed to be able to do that. Well, but, if you can figure out the uh, perfect ingredients to make more turkeys and, and get us to do that <laughs> nationwide, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I'm about. I don't know if I'm yeah. going to be able to come up with the perfect plan, but I'm definitely trying. <laughs> hey, we'll we'll take eighty percent. You know, if it increases yeah. the population, we're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. But well, it's I definitely guess, driving me. I, I want to hear more gobble. I want to see more poles. You know, I I'm with you. I don't care if I hear twenty off one ridge. I'd rather it be twenty one next year. You know, so yeah, yeah, that that's how I am too. But with burning, is that with somebody who owns? pine woods or mm-hmm. even national forest land that's piney is burning like the number one thing you think they could add to the repertoire for turkeys to help them well i, I think that that could you could make a strong argument for that and if you look at across the piney woods and a suite of adaptations of turkeys and pines and those systems and think about what that landscape looked like historically how it has changed and the different land use changes and different uh, things that have been going on and how it's affected turkey populations. I think it's a a pretty strong argument that one of the important factors that we could be influencing is the amount of fire on the ground to really positively influence the the species. So I don't know if it's number one, but it's certainly an important one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like what about out in, you know, California, like the whole state's on fire. Is that going to be good mm-hmm. for turkeys or is mass wide scale fire like that a, you know, pretty terrible thing? <laughs> yeah, well, 
uh, I think the, to answer your question directly, it's generally a bad thing when it's at a catastrophic scale. Like yeah, many that of those many acres. Are. Yeah, yeah and, it, and the severity is extreme. You know, it's mm. not it, it's not these low intensity surface fires that we're trying to do on these you know on your piney woods. That, that's a stand replacing fire. You're you're not trying to wipe the slate clean and lose all your timber. You know, uh, that's a different kind of thing. And uh, in general, that that tends to be negative, even on fire adapted wildlife species. And mm. it, it's a problem, unfortunately, that is multifaceted, but it starts with not burning. So you interrupt that process and then you start to accumulate fuel, particularly out west, that that fuel doesn't decompose very quickly mm-hmm. and yeah. it's dry. You know, we, we can add, add and add and add and add, but if you think about it, you know, I, I like to think about it. I give the analogy to students when I'm teaching about it. You know, if you think about a, a river, you know, that river's flowing and then you dam it up and you can keep building the dam a little bit higher, you know, but eventually if you don't continue to build that up, it'll just dump over the top. And if that dam fails, the the water becomes a really big problem downstream. It's sort of the same thing with fire where you keep, you can keep holding fire out of the system and holding and hold it and you just keep accumulating fuel. And then eventually it's going to catch on fire, and that's what you end up with. Or you know, it's a really catastrophic fire, and uh, mm-hmm. we're trying to avoid that. That that's one of the benefits of using prescribed burning is that we can, mm-hmm. you know, avoid that situation. Yeah. Well, okay. So in, in Tennessee, one of the first things I thought of when you know it was like, all right, we got this place, and we're just going to go with the round number. Let's say it's a thousand acres. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Like, I don't want to light up the whole thousand acres, you know, <laughs> you, so you <laughs> I was, I was curious as to what, what have y'all researched? What is like the ideal burn size for turkeys producing mm-hmm. more turkeys? If that makes sense. Like, yeah, I want to hear a bunch of turkeys gobbling on our property. That's great. But like, yeah. I want to do what is going to help the turkey the most? And if I do that, right. we'll hear plenty of turkeys. Exactly. So yeah, like I, I acreage think, wise, is it like a hundred acre burn, 25 acre, you know, little burns? Well, is that better? I, I think the key thing for everybody to be thinking about the, the anchor to this whole idea of, of how you would maximize turkey production is diversity. And I mean that in a lot of different ways in a diversity of ways, we'll say, <laughs> Uh, you you can influence the vegetation structure and increase diversity of plants in the community where the fire happened, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can move around the landscape where fire occurs, and that increases diversity because you have different stages of succession and maybe even different composition within the same yeah. stage if you change the season. And then we could also increase uh, diversity in the size of burn blocks where you may have a few that are an acre. You may have 10 or 12 of them that are 10 acres. You may have one that's 50 acres. You know, Hmm. you could have a a variety of sizes. And generally, the more you increase that diversity, particularly in the context of forest management with fire, you tend to increase productivity in turkeys. And a whole suite of other species as well. Yeah, quail, I would think, and uh, sure. especially bird Absolutely. species. And I mean, mm-hmm. deer are cool deer, and everything. Deer. We got plenty of them. But well, you'll you'll increase productivity <laughs> of deer as well. Well, I don't. <laughs> you know, so. I don't necessarily even care if I increase them. Honestly, I mean, I like deer. They're fun to eat, but 
you know, they're going to eat the food yeah. plot that could be for the turkeys. So. Yeah. Well, I, I hear you. <laughs> uh, there, there are a lot of landowners out there that, that think about that differently, and that's fine. But yeah. the, really, the crux of it is you, you can increase productivity of a whole suite of species, whichever one you're interested in. Uh, by thinking in that sort of context, you know, the diversity is good. Yeah. Well, so, so. this, I'm just going to kind of describe to you, I guess, what we have. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want you to like, give me your, your doctor's prescription for this place. Okay. So thousand acres, it hasn't been burning forever. There's a ton of fuel on the ground. No lack of that. Mm-hmm. There's needles everywhere and pretty shrubby looking stuff all under there. And the the pines are anywhere from 18 to 20 years old, probably. Some bigger ones, okay. you know, in the draws. Or, but it's or mostly closed like, canopy for the most part. Yeah, a lot of it's closed. And then there's other mm-hmm. areas where they're real sparse, where there's they're not rowed up or anything. It's just like, yeah. it's like they clear cut it way back and some have regenerated nicely. But mm-hmm. a lot of it's just bushes and stuff. And yeah. so yeah. too thick for a know, turkey to go in. Yeah, a lot of that. And a lot mm-hmm. of that. And I think burning could convert that to usable land for turkeys, yeah. which would be, ex- there's a lot of turkeys up there already, which is great. Yeah. We've seen them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's quite a few. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what, well, we want to keep them because these yeah, days they're, they're not doing too hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm but it, year one, this is, this is year one, you know, w- with us having mm-hmm. it. How many acres do you, would you burn on the thousand acres? So this thousand acres is all pine. Or, or are there any Pretty openings? Much. We've opened up maybe total like 60 acres of food plots. Okay. But it's, it's everything else is pines and then there's some hardwoods in the creek bottom draws. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. probably seven creeks running through there. Really hilly. I mean, yeah. just real choppy. And there's, yeah. there's hardwoods along the creek bottoms, but you know, they're not huge. They're upland hardwoods. So they're not really big trees. Mm-hmm. Big enough to well, roost in. Yeah, based on what you're telling me and just from my experience in that part of the world and and around the south, it sounds like one thing that would probably limit that population first is just brood rearing Mm -hmm. cover habitat. Yeah, And that's most often or the most productive brood rearing cover is early succession. So that's one thing that immediately would provide a lot of benefit. And I'm not talking about the food plots. Food plots are providing, you know, some of that, that, and Mm -hmm. that's great. Uh, But most food plot mixes are kind of poor on the structure side and the the poults are vulnerable out in it. You'll see them picking around in it, and especially when they get bigger. But in the first two weeks of life, they're pretty vulnerable. And mm-hmm. you really want a, a nice structure that they can forage around underneath and move freely along the ground level, you know, where they're only yeah. two inches tall. They need to be able to move under the vegetation. And you think about most of your food plot mixes at that time of the year, you know, late spring, they don't they don't have a lot of bare ground underneath them for no, them to walk around and do That's that. when they're the fullest, you yeah. <laughs> know. Yeah, yeah. So one one way to immediately increased productivity is to devote some land to early succession where you're just going to manage the native plant community. A lot of times it it can be associated with your food plots and that's fantastic because Mm. the turkeys will use the food plots and the early succession directly next to it. And if you like deer, they, they do the same thing. You know, a lot of species can benefit. I posted something recently showing a 
uh, I was talking about what turkeys eat at different times of the year, and I, one of the posts in there was a little video showing a plot in Tennessee where we did exactly that, and there's a mosaic of food plots that were planted for turkeys and deer, and then the you know the the gray space was all early succession, and we've just been managing that over time with fire and occasionally mm. disking or. You know, if you have a couple of plant species that are problems, you know, invasives or whatever, you can go in and spot spray it. But after we got those fields cleaned up and and, uh, we've been managing them for years now as early succession, I mean, it's just an unbelievably productive part of Mm. the landscape given how the proportion of it, right? Because that's that's a – when you look across the range of turkeys and we're talking about them not doing well – the reality is the life stage where they're not doing well is that first two weeks of life. Mm-hmm. Like pulp That's production, exactly right. You know, that is where the bottleneck is. You know, the nesting is okay. It's not, it could be better. Nesting success. Pulp, you know, the adult survival, it could be better, but it's not something that we're really worried about. If you look at pulp survival, that That's... is really worrying across the range. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you know, that's that's where poults really thrive is in that early succession. Now, that being said, so you were exactly point on with your more open forest where you're getting plenty of sunlight past the canopy, but now it's getting blocked by the mid-story yeah. with all those shrubs and everything. I mean, that's mm-hmm. essentially not usable to a turkey anymore. Yeah, Fire that's what I looked at can, it and thought that exactly. Yeah, yeah. Fire can be used in that context to top kill and remove that structure that that mid-story structure and it immediately becomes usable Mm -hmm. now uh in some cases you may need to go in and and get rid of some of that fuel in a different way Uh, i've had instances where people had to go in with a a tree cutter or something and try to remove it it depends on the context that you're in but you know you may be in a situation where you can already use a, a nice low intensity dormant season fire to go in and initially start treating that that stands safely without worry of damaging the overstory and you can kill a lot of those trees. Uh, sometimes, you know, they're, they're already too big where fire isn't going to top kill them. That's when you mm. might need another treatment, uh, as well, where you may have to go in and treat some of those, those bigger trees, especially sweet gum. It uh, seems to hang on really well. Uh, of course, you know, where you might the, have to go the in ones and you inject them or, or spray them <laughs> or something. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. Sweet gums. Well, you can't you kill want. them. <laughs> but that being said, I have, uh, one study, Rainer Nichols was the graduate student involved in it. We were really interested in, in burning at different times in that context to see how well it controlled the hardwoods. And even sweet gum uh, does not handle a growing season fire well at all. And we were able to burn in that context. Uh, that was uh, south of you down in the, the southern coastal plain. But uh, so, you know, uh, the growing season fire, if you're in a situation where you can use that, can even knock back those larger trees like that really well. And uh, we, we converted some stands pretty quickly just using fire that way and, and didn't damage any of the overstory while we were doing it. So uh, it really depends. Hmm. It, that, that really comes down to you getting experience using it. You know, this isn't this is one of those uh, high skill tools, right, where. Yeah, you, that's, you, that's part main, of what mainly I'm because about of here. the perceived <laughs> the perceived risk. You know, it, it's really that you. It seems like a much bigger 
deal than it really is but you need to get the appropriate training and, and experience so that you know mm-hmm. that you're safe with it and once you understand what yeah. you're doing and how to apply it and and what you know how to uh anticipate what's going to happen with the way that you apply it then it starts becoming a one of those tools that you can just use every year you know yeah so uh when you said early succession are you talking like I, I immediately thought of like prairie grass, like out in Kansas, like look, that kind of mm-hmm. look. Like you're talking old field, kind of managing that look. Like it's a it's an open field looking area, but it's you're just letting it grow up with natural forbs. Yeah, that that's a great question. And and to be honest with you, most people don't know what that looks like because okay. most of the people, you know, like I drive around. I could drive from here where I'm at in Florida to where you're at in Tennessee. And I would probably not intersect where I can see it from the road one field that I would call really high quality brood cover, you know, in early succession. Mm. I mean, it's just not on you the mean landscape. A, a cotton real. field isn't great for a brood cover. <laughs> no. no, and neither is you know neither is a, a bahia pasture or fescue pasture okay. when you start getting yeah. up in your part of the world. It, it's just not. And but that's dominating the openings. You know, and where it's mm. not that, it's in it's in a food plot. So, uh, yeah, you're 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 on the right on the mark with old field vegetation. What I'm talking mm-hmm. about is a, a mixture of warm season grasses with annual and perennial forbs. So you think about goldenrods, and uh, I'm trying to think of things, uh, bone sets, the things that you you pretty you see pretty commonly. Those kinds of things make up that that plant community structure, and you want it to be fairly balanced. Where you do have some grasses in there, it helps carry the the fire when you return with fire in it. Uh, it also provides good structure. The forbs really provide high insect production. They also mm-hmm. Uh, when they're in that the interstitial space that's underneath the forbs between the grasses is where the poults are all running around under there and are, are protected. Uh, it also yeah. has really high seed production and the, the foliage is higher quality. So, you know, that having a mixture of those two things, it's okay. You know, once you start getting a little farther since that you used fire. You'll start getting a little bit of woody encroachment into it, so you might have some little mots of of uh, blackberries and and uh, you know shrub yeah. species like like uh, I'm trying to think of uh, I can't think of the common name of roofs right now, but uh, yeah things things that you're accustomed to seeing, you're just not necessarily accustomed to seeing them covering a couple acre field, right? Yeah, where they're they're dominating the community and and really making sure that there aren't any of the pasture grasses in it is important because they they have this tendency to form a mat underneath that that plant community mm-hmm. and or or just exclude those plants altogether in some cases. But uh, when that grass is mixed in there, especially you think about that little bumblebee that turkey ate right after it hatches that poult. It's so little, it, it doesn't take that much before there's a real obstruction, you know, trying to get around. Yeah, the mountain uh, for him to get it, over. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, that grass really is a big hindrance because of that. And and when yeah. I'm thinking about producing a lot of turkeys, that's the, you know, I'm thinking about a, a two-inch tall turkey. That's where we really mm. need to to 
to beef things up. And the truck is essentially quail. I mean, if you go ahead, Andy. Yeah. No, I I was just going to say, you know, if we've got that mat of centipede or Mm -hmm. mat of bahia or fescue or whatever it is, is there, I I don't think fire is is a good cure for that. Is it? Is more going to be treatment of herbicide? Yeah, it it requires herbicide. You're right. Yeah, you you and uh generally Craig Harper in your state has done the majority of work in in terms of managing old fields for turkeys and quail has done the majority of work on this right there in that state and uh he's shown that you can very effectively with a couple of applications of herbicide uh basically turn the community into exactly what you want to manage long term to maximize mm. productivity of both. <clears throat> so, so, so if that at that point, would you recommend coming in and trying to seed some things like little blue sedge or things like that in that, there? With some warm season you know grasses. That, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that's the the common thing. Everybody wants to plant stuff, and I'm I'm including me in that. Uh, but Craig just finished a study. I, I've been kind of tangentially involved in it but he's had a series of graduate students and they did it over 20 something sites or or you know really large scale study i can't remember how many sites but they showed they were actually testing that idea do we need to plant all these fescue pastures that we can trying to convert back to turkey habitat do we need to plant anything or can we just do that with herbicide and fire and disking and uh they showed overwhelmingly convincingly that it is rare that planting anything is needed. The plants that you want, they may be a little different from property or field to field or whatever, but the structure that is produced consistently with the assemblage of plants that's going to respond on your field are going to produce really high quality brooding cover. Okay. So So you very rarely need to plant. Now that, you know, if it's a cotton field, uh, that's a little different because that's (laughs) had a history of of trying to get rid of the seed bank. You know, so it's a little different than the fescue pasture context, but. Interesting. These fields we've created, I call them fields. I mean, we just finished those and I mean, it, it literally is dirt right now. It's just dirt. Mm-hmm. they're scraped dirt say it's 20 mm-hmm. acres is the best uh, i mean and that's what they look like right now today december yeah. so mm-hmm. do we need to do anything there or just you know we seeded some of them but let's say one of them's 20 acres maybe we seed half of it in food plot and the other 10 acres and just let it grow or would, would you would go it? till it up before spring well it depends what so what were the fields were they forests they were pine, that you cleared or thick they were junk yeah i mean just areas where so they, it was i mean they weren't a fescue pasture with... before you tilled no it up. no they no were these a... were like briars yeah. and all kind of you know just then mm-hmm. where the where they had clear cut maybe let's call it a 20 year old clear cut basically <laughs> yeah yeah so you probably so, don't have the issue of the the pasture grasses in it or it's probably not a big oh, issue no. if they are so you know you could probably t- set aside some of that and you if you have disturbed the soil during the fall or winter, then you're probably mm-hmm. going to end up with a lot of good stuff respond. If you if if okay. you had done a lot of that dirt work maybe in May, then you'd probably end up with some problem that more problems like Johnson grass or something like that would yeah uh, respond to that that timing of soil disturbance. But you'll probably end up with a lot of ragweed and goldenrod and 
and uh, bone sets and stuff like that, stuff that you want to, to be in there. A lot of uh, warm season grasses will start colonizing. So uh, you, you could pro- you're probably in a situation where you could go ahead and start setting it up so that you, you know, just manage it with fire and disking. Yeah. And is there a certain, like, let's just say you had a perfect rectangle field, looks like a football field. Is it better to, like, put the food plot portion in the dead middle and have all around it the the nice grasses? Or would you just do the north half is this, the south half is that? Like, is there a certain structure to the plot that seems to be more conducive to turkey production i kind of feel yeah, like I, a strip down the middle of food with the grass around it sounds good to me but i'm no turkey yeah well that that's perfectly fine I, I think the main thing is try to avoid long linear features and, and mix it up you know you, if it's you know the ha- having a, a green patch that's a circle in one of them and a square in the next one and a, a triangle in the next one you know that's kind of being facetious with that, but, uh, you know, mixing up that arrangement, the, the important thing about the whole thing, the, this whole situation and, and bringing it back to the biology of the turkey is you want them to have access close to the different things they need for their, you know, their life cycle. And that mm-hmm. the, the proximity is potentially, potentially, devastating when you're two inches tall right Mm -hmm. so like let's say okay we've got really good high quality nesting cover well that's probably not going to be where your high quality brooding cover is so if they're right next to each other where that little two inch tall turkey doesn't have to hop right in yeah yeah like you want them to be close by to to one another and and on the landscape they they normally aren't in most contexts now most people don't have those two things right together so you know think about it from that perspective and then you might you know the your adult turkeys are doing different things on the landscape and obviously things being super close to one another is not nearly as important as when they were two inches tall but you know you're still you're thinking at at a larger spatial scale now of arranging the different things that they need at different times of the year or different times of their life stage you want them to be close enough together and you know the reality is you don't want to burn the same spot over and over year after year after year so that that's always you know where the good brooding cover or where the good nesting cover is is going to be changing so you really have to you know that's where the diversity really plays an important role is because when you have a really diverse regime you start just by design of it being diverse providing lots of different stages and those different resources that are needed in those stages and they tend to be in close proximity even though they're always constantly moving around the landscape if that makes sense that makes really good sense because if you think about a if your brooding is half a mile from your nesting like a, Those a two inch bumblebee size <laughs> bolt is ne- i yeah. mean that's that's like me walking to jerusalem from here like there's no way yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're gonna die it, it, Yeah. (laughs) When Mike Chamberlain has very well demonstrated this with a a couple of studies where they were tracking turkeys and poults. And, uh, you know, that's what he showed once we get it. There's a, you know, a certain distance. And I don't remember exactly what that was, but I know he has posted it uh, in several places for people to, to see it online where, you know, it's not that far before decoupling the nesting cover from the brooding cover 
results in zero productivity, where literally the mm. the, the hens lose their poles. So, mm. uh, what you yeah, describe really is brooding. What's what would be nesting cover compared to brooding? Because like what you said with the brooding cover sounds like a good spot to build a nest to me. But yeah, so we there's pretty weak selection overall in turkeys in terms of you know the nests don't they don't show at the micro site scale we don't see really consistent choices like you would with a quail for instance quail have a very similar pattern every nest mm. kind of looks the same uh you know they they have something that they put it up against and they they shroud it the same way you know that that's pretty consistent with that species where turkeys are a little more inconsistent and at that scale but at a larger scale, we tend to see them go into a little longer time sense disturbance. So, uh, you know, maybe what's really high quality brooding cover that, you know, might be the year of or the year after that the fire occurred, whereas the nesting might be two years after fire occurred. So it's just a little more mm. thicker and, and uh, more hairy, but it doesn't take that long before it comes becomes that mess that you were talking about you had useless uh, with that story yeah. where they they don't use it at all then so hmm. uh you know like uh some of mike's stuff he, he was telling me about uh some of his his turkeys he had radio tagged and and they literally didn't have any turkey use of it so uh wow yeah that it, it really is you know important to think about this as a you know you're going to be frequently back to the same piece of ground applying fire again which that's convenient that once you get it set up and you know what's going on, it's pretty cheap to, to accomplish, you know, yeah. and it's fun. So, but that goes yeah. back to making sure that you get the, you know, the training that's so that, available to you. There's mm-hmm. lots of people that are trained that are, you know, consult or whatever to come help you. Uh, you know, you have a state agency that supports those activities. Uh, there we're, I'm working on a thing with a, a whole bunch of people right now trying to, to establish these prescribed burn associations, which is basically a bunch of people in the community sharing their resources in terms of, Hey, I've got the rakes, you've got the flappers, they've got the, the water truck, you know, we're going to go burn everybody's place together. Uh, so, yeah, that's awesome. you know, and, and everybody gets experience doing that on each other's land. So those can be really effective and they haven't taken off in the south like they have out in the midwest so we're trying to get that Mm -hmm. going but uh you know you have a lot of opportunities to get that experience and once you do this could be you know it can be a really effective tool to produce uh some high quality turkey habitat because it's so flexible and cheap once you get going with it to to move you know constantly move these things around so that you can you know continue to produce a lot of turkeys over time yeah so let's like a life cycle of a burned block mm-hmm. the first year you burn let's say we burn in i don't know is march would be a good time to burn i assume well that's the typical time to burn and, and it's perfectly okay. fine to burn then okay so we burn in march turkeys mm-hmm. that year what will their use of that be i mean i know a lot of times they'll come in there and start scratching right off the bat yeah. i assume it's a lot but, of cooked meals in there for them oh yeah there my that's one of the things i've worked on a lot is what the timing and the initial the, the the same year as the fire occurred what happens with with mm-hmm. uh, turkeys and deer and 
and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, you're exactly right. We've had several instances where turkeys are in the burn unit the same day or the next day. They, wow. they seem to be just roasting in the smoke. And, and I know of a couple of cases where that did occur for sure. Uh, but we'll, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll set things on fire. And then I have students out there behind it putting cameras back up and you can still see the flames out in the distance on the camera, you know. And uh, we'll have turkeys wow. pitching down in front of the camera the next morning, you know, landing there. That's crazy. Uh, so, yeah, they're, they're having an extreme attraction. They know the game. Even if it, it's weird because there's been plenty of places where we were doing that research where the turkeys w- would have conceivably never have been interacted with fire in their life. You know, a, a four-year-old turkey would have mm-hmm. never seen fire anywhere near the place. And they're still in there the same or next day. Like they know that the game, and uh, that's that seems to be what they're doing. You know, there's dead insects laying around everywhere. There's beetles and ants running around, scavenging those that they're catching. There, you know, there's seeds laying around. If you're in a time of the year when something like blackberries fruiting, the fruits are laying around, cooked everywhere. You know, it, it's mm. just a, a flurry of awesome stuff to eat just laying around. Yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, you burn in, in March. There. Yeah. Do they? Will the poults use that in June to say they're born yeah. and you know they're hatching around June? Is, yeah. So and that's going to be high it, quality brooding cover by June. Yeah, and typically when you would see poult using poults using your you know an open forest where you've got a broken canopy and getting a lot of sunlight in, you're seeing a lot mm-hmm. of poult use of that, uh, especially when they're young that first year because by the time you get around to june you know the vegetation's it, yeah. it may be up to knee tall even by then and it's still a lot of bare ground in that but the structure yeah good. perfect yeah and so, so that first year sees a lot of use and then let's fast forward the same burn you did last year you don't do anything to it year two are they still using it you, you'll see some the spring comes around on that uh, I think mm-hmm. it's probably in most places going to start declining. If you're in a place where the it's a little poorer or a shorter growing season, you might get another year out of it uh, where it's really high quality. Uh, I think that's but case then that... by case. But typically, I would start in the places that I normally work. We'd start seeing that taper off a little bit, but they're still using it a lot. And uh, by year three, you know, this the next growing season, we really start to see lower use of it but know, pretty low use from what you said when, when with the, the when the, the poles nesting, are really young will the hens be using it for nesting purposes more in that second and third year yeah that's where we would see the increase in nesting exactly what you just said you, you don't see that much in the first mm. year but the next year you start seeing it pick up and typically in most of the studies i think it, it tends to peak in the the third year Wow. Okay. So, so that's why it's key, I guess, to have these rotational blocks of like, you know, this is a year one, one next to a year two, one, which is next to a year three, yeah, one. <laughs> exactly. So then you, and if they're you have all rotating habitat. through, yeah, then you have yeah. a place that's a real magnet during turkey season, you know, that's black mm. next to yep. 
a place that's a real magnet for the hens that that nest in the one next to that one that was really good nesting cover and they're all right juxtaposed another to one another so then you've created a place where you can hunt and hear and kill turkeys but you're also yeah. helping produce a ton of turkeys absolutely that's that the sounds idea like a, <laughs> that sounds like a deal to me i'm in i'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna go light a match right now and run up there and throw it on something i hear you well i think there's some <laughs> important uh important things you know to make sure that you understand mm-hmm. uh, with the we were talking about earlier uh the pine stand that was really dense and not much flush and vegetation under it that that's mm-hmm. that's typical of most of our stands that are kind of light and they're you know they haven't been thinned uh mm-hmm. you're a little later yeah. in the rotation and they're closed canopy that's a light limited yep. system and what i mean by that is all the vegetation that is going to respond to the fire in the understory that's creating all this high quality habitat to nest in or produce poults or whatever uh that's all being limited by sunlight first so you won't see the response if it's closed can yeah it, you yeah have there's to no have sun, sunlight no, getting in yeah yeah that makes so, sense because another thing that if it's closed canopy pretty, there's no grass under there anyway yeah exactly it's just clean and there's a role of having some of that around right mm. it, having that huh. that shaded breezy area you know they'll loaf around in that and hang around in it. That, that it's not a problem to have some of that. Like, it's a good mm-hmm. thing, right? It's an you adding. Just, you don't to want the a diversity. thousand acre block of that, <laughs> right? You don't want it to all be that. Yeah. But having some of that is a good thing. So that's where we really mm-hmm. get in. Everybody wants to go all in and do exactly the same thing everywhere, and that's just you know we want a little bit of everything everywhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's one important thing to keep in mind is is that sunlight. Another thing that that is a pretty common mistake, and I I think it's because of some of the lack of communication between the the wildlife folks and the forestry folks. I have a degree in both of them, so I, I uh, try to toe that line a lot, and and we just don't talk across that line very much. The typical uh, recommendations you would get for managing for maximum timber production are not the same thing that we would give to maximize turkey or, or whatever other wildlife species production and the main difference that i see is we tend to thin at that mid-rotation thinning in a pine plantation to a a lower basal area when we are have a wildlife focus and it'd be a really low basal area if you were focused on quail you know we may be trying to get the stand down to 30 or 40 basal area in that context whereas with a turkey we might be looking at a 50 or 60 basal area could really be high quality to have some of that available to maximize mm. this influence of fire on the you know uh on the bird and in, in uh nesting and pole production so whereas mm. with a timber uh timber operation you wouldn't thin that low we tip we'd be more like at an 80 basal area with that thinning where we're getting down so you can see uh even if you don't know what basal area is you can go look that up but you can already understand those numbers are different we're just talking about how many trees are you know how much tree is there so the higher number just means there's more tree there it returns back to a closed canopy much quicker you're getting less sunlight in with that thinning so you know that's a good way to think about it but uh, mm-hmm. we typically go a little bit lower if we were trying to maximize 
that potential for nesting and brooding for turkeys. Yeah, that makes sense that it would be even lower for quail because I mean the mm-hmm. trees aren't really useful for them. You know. <laughs> yeah, I, so, I, I but, posted but, a couple of things online from longleaf pine. You know, we call that a savanna yeah. at that point or woodland. Uh, but, uh, yeah, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm in some of these places in like Southwest Georgia or whatever, where I'm on a quail plantation and, you know, they've got like four trees breakers, what it looks like out there is there aren't that many trees. Uh, so there's a ton of sunlight getting in and they're trying to maximize, uh, you know, maximize production of quail. There's still a lot of turkeys there too. Yeah, that makes sense. So you said 50 to 60 basil is is turkey kind of sweet spot? Yeah, I think that'd be closer to it. And, you know, all of these things are are, uh, site specific and depending on your objectives and that sort of thing. But that's a pretty good uh, ballpark for you to be thinking about. And Mm -hmm. uh, again, I want to, you know, we we have this tendency, me included, where we want to do everything that way. You don't want that on all thousand acres. That, yeah, know, that's not that's not what I was saying. You know, having some of that available is important. It doesn't all need to be that. You also need some yeah. high quality early succession, and you know, having some of those closed canopy breezy stands are fine. If you want to maximize timber production in a couple of your really productive sites or whatever, then great, do that too. It's just adding diversity to it and you don't have to devote every inch of it to one thing and you shouldn't that's really what turkeys are missing today is it not is the diversity oh yeah i think that's that's really you know i was hesitating earlier i don't see very high quality early succession hardly ever and i I don't see fire being used as a, a big part of forest management hardly ever uh, unless you know we're talking to a landowner like like you guys that that are uh, really really interested in producing a lot of turkeys i'm just not i don't see that from the average uh landowner you know and a lot of our public lands have competing objectives and restrictions and things that they're dealing with and and uh you know the objectives are, are different so yeah we're, we're in a landscape where having that consistent diversity that just by default produces high quality foraging and brooding and nesting in an arrangement that allows them to to use all of them you know where they're all close together and that being consistent you know over time it's just not not very common on the landscape anymore yeah Hmm. you know we've talked a lot about pine plantations is there any benefit in burning a hardwood stand or a piece of a hardwood stand obviously it'd want to be a dormant burn but well uh we can we can talk about a a lot of the a lot of that I, i have done a lot of work with burning and upland hardwoods and a lot of that work's been in tennessee and uh the the short answer to your question is yes there is a lot that you can gain from burning in that context in an upland hardwood stand and you can do it safely in the dormant season or other times of the year uh, you probably aren't going to be able to pull it off in the summer in the current condition of most upland hardwood stands because they have too much their canopy is closed uh, and it just won't carry a fire through there. But uh, you can get a lot of the same benefits and even 
some some things you might get a better response in that context if you're getting enough sunlight to the ground in those stands. Uh, one thing that that I see that is extremely attractive for turkeys, even if you have a closed canopy stand and you're not going to get much vegetation response, is when you remove all that that leaf litter, uh, you have a lot of acorns and stuff laying around on the ground that turkeys are, I mean, it's a magnet for them. Yeah. So hmm. uh, you can get a lot of benefit. But, you know, that that one's a, a trickier situation because we, you know, a lot of people are uncomfortable starting to burn, but even people that are comfortable burning are uncomfortable burning in their oak stands. And, uh, <laughs> and I understand. Believe me, I, I get it. You know, those things are, are valuable. But uh, hmm. I, I just... Uh, I actually just finished an article to be in the next issue of Quality Whitetails on this specific thing, and uh, I was relating it to deer, of course, since it's in that magazine. But uh, what we did, and it was actually the state wildlife forester, who's a good friend of mine in Tennessee, and I wrote this together, and we went through all the literature on burning and up on hardwoods and how much how much would we lose in timber production if we go in and burn consistently in a three or four year return interval over the next, you know, 10, 10 years plus, how much could we expect to lose? And what we did, we had, we actually had several studies where they were trying to damage trees and that kind of, that may sound funny, but they were actually trying to restore it to a, a, woodland structure where it's a lower tree density and yeah. they were trying to do it mainly with fire so they were actually trying to damage the trees with fire and uh the, we we took that damage and what we would lose in it and then looked at what we would gain in forage production for deer and then did you know calculated all the way out to dollars and cents what are we getting out of it and how much does it cost us even taking the losses on the trees and uh, I think we even put in contract costs if we contracted all the burning and the fire breaks and everything, and then compared that to producing forage for deer in other ways, like food plots or out of a feeder. And it was unbelievable to me. I was kind of shocked when we got done with all the math. It, even taking the losses, which were even uh, at the worst case scenario, still not that much. Uh, it, it was so much more cost effective to do that than food plots. It was kind of astounding. Wow. And, and it was like 50 times or uh, I forget what the exact numbers were, but it's like, you know, literally tens of times more effective or more efficient than using a feeder to do the, to produce the same amount of protein. So, uh, yeah, really interesting. Uh, and, it, and that was me just trying to address a barrier that, you know, we have this perception that we're going to damage all our hardwoods and lose all that value. Yeah. And uh, that that's really uh, over many studies across the central hardwoods and southern Appalachians, that, that's just not what the data show. And, and uh, even when we went with worst case scenario and took some losses, you still are getting out better uh, in terms of cost efficiency than you would have been uh, with some of the other practices we do without blinking an eye. Mm-hmm. So, when would you now that recommend? Being said, with, with turkey habitat, you're getting some things out of turkey habitat that you can't even produce in a different way. You know, the, like that would be the only way to get it. So, uh, you know, there's obviously that value. So say that again. When would you recommend doing a hardwood burn, ideally? Yeah, you said you've I, done I think, both. Yeah, mo- most of the time, 
the dormant season is a, is a good time to do that, uh, especially if you're starting out. That's a really safe time when you have a lot of good burn days and the conditions are, are suitable and stable to do it. It's also when most people are doing that. You know, that's just historically when we've always done it. Uh, another time that can be really effective, and we're getting a lot of data on to show it can have some real benefits, especially on shifting the composition to desirable plants, is to burn during the fall. Mm. And uh, we're, we're seeing some really good stuff in, in the upcoming research. We've, we're starting to release that stuff now. It's... Uh, you know that that's not typically thought of, but we get a lot of good burn days, and the f- fire at that time of the year is much better at top killing a lot of these undesirables like uh, sweet gum or something like that. Yeah, uh, it's really effective at top killing those seedlings and saplings that we're trying to get rid of, and, and stimulates at the same time. It also better stimulates a lot of the forbs that are high desirable forb species. So uh, that's that's one of the real benefits of changing the timing. The 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 traditional dormant season February March time frame is fantastic to maintain that structure of vegetation that we want for a long time, and it's not as effective as the fall burning in particular at shifting the composition of of the plants. So both are going to affect the structure. And the dormant okay. season does that awesome, maintains that structure really well. And, and there's added benefit of it being right before turkey season where the turkeys all are going to be really attracted to it during turkey season. The fall, the added benefit that you could get there is that it also shifts the composition, you know, the, the actual identity of the plant species that are making up the community will change to more desirable species generally hmm. very interesting very interesting back to i just wanted to go back to one question because i don't know sure. I, i'm sitting i'm like i'm just trying to get some information for personal gain here yeah for the thousand <laughs> you have to send probably, him a bill marcus <laughs> yeah seriously this is a consulting fee uh, <laughs> for the thousand acres if it was yours let's just under the assumption all thousand is burnable looks exactly mm-hmm. the same pine plantation percentage wise per year what should we be trying to burn like 10 to 20 percent five percent i just have no idea what like if yeah. i burn 20 uh, acres have i done something or i need to go burn 200 acres in a bunch of different blocks yeah that's a great question and uh what what i normally have people do you know, you, you could think about it, okay, we want to have some three-year-old rough, we want to have some two-year-old rough, and some one-year-old rough for the different benefits that we've been discussing, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to have, you know, your instinct then would be, okay, a three-year return interval, and then we won't end mm-hmm. up with any of that, that sort of rank stuff that they won't use. And that's one way that, that you could think about it. And a lot of people- 33% a year. Yeah, but a lot of people just can't accomplish that. So that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that you can't have the same kind of impact, right? So what you could do is break your property up into more digestible units and then try to take some of them, especially the ones where you really like turkeys or you really see a lot of them or you know they use it a lot, and try to mm-hmm. accomplish that at a smaller scale in patches across your property. So maybe you you and take so your three year rotation. Of, yeah. Okay. Three, three to five is a, is a pretty good 
number for that part of the okay. world, three to five year rotation. But, but some okay. stands, you know, may not fit within that parameter and, and they're just not going to be where you're producing turkeys, right? So yeah. you could have your hundred acre block that's really conducive to you doing that. And then you burn 30 or 40 acres of it each year. And it, and it's really easy to accomplish like the, uh, the stand next to the, you know, surrounded by roads next to the water, really easy to to burn that, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, burn you know, that, that certainly should be one that you keep on the, the docket because it's easy to accomplish. You can, you can get in there and get it done consistently, you know, think about it that way and, and break your property into areas and have some areas that you're going to manage really intensively. And the more of it, the better, but, you know, break off what you can chew. You know, you, you don't mm-hmm. eat an elephant all at once. You eat it a bite at a time. So that that's a, a good way to think about it is break it down into digestible units. Another thing with the, the spatial scale of fire, you know, I, I'm trying to th- normally think of burn blocks being 50 acres or less that kind of being on the higher end. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean you can't burn bigger than that. I generally don't like to. But you can, and and you're not going to have a detrimental effect necessarily doing that, right? Especially if it, you know, if it's a, a really long linear stand, you know, where it doesn't, you know, uh, you can get across it really quickly. That's not a big deal then. Uh, if it's a, mm-hmm. a a square that, you know, that may be a, getting a little bit large. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, burnt, you also may have a, a little triangle between two roads, you know, where they split. And then you've got a little triangle of an acre and a half that's really easy to burn. Well, that needs to be on the docket too, right? You could burn a, an acre and a half and, and really get a lot of good stuff out of that. We plant an acre and a half food mm-hmm. pot and expect that to to do, yeah. you know, big things. So. Yep. Think about the fires the same way. There's no reason that, especially if your your property just sets up some of those opportunities where it makes it really easy for you, there's no reason not to go ahead and add mm. that in. And every little piece is sense. just adding to the diversity, uh, especially when you have, you know, these little odd pieces. And then maybe you have one bigger block of timber that, that you don't have any roads through and it's easier to just bite it all off in one chunk. Yeah. So yeah, the main thing is, you know, when you're thinking about like that, your property really is dictating how you promote diversity at that point and how you can be mm-hmm. efficient in promoting that diversity. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I like, I like thinking of it on the annual deal that, that kind of mm-hmm. helps segregate it in my mind. And you're yeah. right. You know, and, part of it, you're never going to be able to do anything to, so right. take that part out, you know? <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't let it keep you from getting things done. You know, there may yeah. just be some a couple of places that aren't going to be your turkey woods, and that's fine. I'd love for it all to be turkey yeah. woods, but that's just not reality. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And if you break it down into more digestible units, then uh, you know, then you can kind of uh, spread out the effort where you're not doing all of it in one place. You kind of have, you know, maybe you have a 10-acre block on the northwest corner of the property and a five acre block in the center and mm-hmm. you know, a 30 acre block on the southeast corner and then now all of a sudden you have spread out your effort and you more importantly have created opportunity for the things that turkeys need at different life stages to be close together across the property mm-hmm. even though you didn't get the third of the property done. Marcus yeah. is there benefit 
I mean, to me, it seems logical that there is, but is there benefit in saying, okay, I'm going to burn this 20 acre block in June. I'm going to burn that 40 acre block over there in October. I'm going to burn this 60 acre block over here in February, and then we'll do a 10 acre block over here in April. I mean, is that as long as you keep it on that same rotation, that same block on that same rotation, in other words, your 40 acre block is burned in the fall every, every single year, mm-hmm. or not every single year, every but third every year. third year, yeah. are you are you doing good? The the most succinct answer to that is yes. Uh, okay. And they, and here's some reasons why. From the In terms of the biology of the bird, that is great for them to have constant access to recently burned area. They use it year round mm-hmm. for all kinds of reasons and uh, having the, you know, the vegetation in different stages since fire throughout the year is really valuable and it can be for other species for other reasons as well. Mm-hmm. And another real value to doing what you just said is you're not trying to get it all done in one weekend. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you've got one little tiny window and I, I put some, I, I did this uh, thing on Instagram and uh, other social media where I went through to see historically how many burn days do we get at different times of the year and then yeah. kind of went through all the barriers to that. And the the short of it is, if you want to see the details, you can see it on there. But the short of it here is there aren't that many burn days during that time of the year. Right. right, it gets whittled down really quickly, and if you're trying to get all third a third of your thousand acres burned in one weekend, that ain't happening unless you burn all of you know one three hundred acre block. You know, yeah. it just isn't not it's not going to work. And the benefit to spreading it out and you know throughout the year is you can get you know you have a couple of places that you really strategically want to be able to hunt during turkey season. You can burn you know, get them done and then be waiting on your next burn day and just be watching. And next time you get a good burn day, you have a couple more blocks that are on the docket. Uh, I work with a guy over in Mississippi that does this as well as anybody I've ever seen. That guy is sitting there looking at the fire weather and he's waiting. He can't stand it. He's waiting mm-hmm. for the conditions to be right. And when they're right, he's setting something on fire yeah. every day. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's setting something on fire and the response that he's seeing from turkeys and quail, he he never had quail until now. And now he's, you know, he's really excited about that. His deer production is exceptional. Uh, you know, he's seeing some real benefits and he's getting to spread out that effort. And he's kind of like y'all were talking, he's, he's kind of become a pyro where he just has fun doing that. You know, yeah. it's enjoyable to go out and get some stuff yeah. done. And, and uh, he's getting to spread that out and, you know, he'll, he'll talk about, man, I, I burned something and then I went and got on the deer stand. And then, uh, you know, I, next spring I, I'm out there listening to some turkeys gobble and they shut up. So then I went and set something on fire and, <laughs> you know, he's just doing it all year round. And, and it's really been beneficial that it's just opened up the opportunity to get the stuff done. Yeah. Mm. What, That's I mean... Awesome. I'm not trying to keep you all day either, but when you say a burn day, like what would you say would be maybe top three factors for a good burn day? Yeah, was so uh, that'll be a little different where you're at, and you have a resource available to you on your your state forestry agency, wherever the listeners are. Uh, there's a couple mm-hmm. of important factors. You know, you're looking at humidity and wind direction, where your smoke's going to go. There are a lot of 
important things that are dictating whether it will burn, whether it will be safe, and where your smoke is going to go. And uh, the, the state agency, they all have a little bit different guidelines, and it varies a little bit based on what kind of, of uh, fuel you're burning in. But they'll have pretty good gu guidelines to help you in your context uh, that's in a nicely mm -hmm. packaged resource already uh, on your state agency website. So, yeah, that's good to know. Yeah. Very good. And, this and, has been you know, awesome. Call your, when you're calling to get your burn permit in whatever state you're in, whoever's answering the phone is going to be able to talk to you or direct you to the person right there that deals with that. And, and you know, you can ask them about it and talk to them about it, get some information from them about it. So, you know, that, that can be a huge help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, this has been well, fun. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, excellent. Excellent information for me. And, you know, hopefully the listener will get something out of it, too. But, yeah, you know, well, at least I got something I hope out so. of it. Well, I hope maybe a few more turkeys will get made this year. That's, me that's fired up. I, I'm going to set my backyard goal. on fire. <laughs> yeah, I just put my office, I put my office on fire. I'm, I'm going to get turkeys here. Yeah, you're getting fired up. <laughs> <laughs> Literally fired up. Yeah, yeah, I love that point. That's awesome. But yeah, yeah, man, I, I sure appreciate it. And I got to yeah. tell you one thing I saw on your Instagram. I want to figure out where to get some of those oaks y'all got in Florida that are about one inch tall putting on huge acorns. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go seed those things across the world up here if I can get them to grow. Yeah. Well, I'm growing some in a greenhouse right now. I was trying to see, do they get taller when you get them out of South Florida? Or Yeah, but yeah, that that was dwarf live oak, and I just was floored when I found those things because they're ankle tall and they've got gigantic acorns on it. And I found them because there was a big flock of turkeys all hanging out, and I couldn't get them. You know, when I, when I drove up to them, they didn't run away or anything, and I was like, what are y'all doing out there? And uh, I couldn't figure out what the vegetation was they were standing in, and finally when I got out of the truck and they flushed off uh sure enough it was a big oak flat of six inch tall oaks with gigantic acorns on them all over the place <laughs> wow can, can those grow in tennessee like i want those uh i looked at the range map i think it, they uh occur all i think that they all occur in the southern coastal plain so wow. i i don't think they mm. would do very well up there but Darn. uh yeah really Figure interesting. Out how to get those things going I mean, that, that's got to be like the coolest oak I've ever seen. If you haven't, go check out Marcus's Instagram and look at that post. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I try to post, you know, when I see something really wild like that, uh, especially that will resonate with the hunting community. Uh, I try to yeah. post it because it's six inch that one tree just putting me on away. monster acorns. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the turkeys were eating acorns right off the limb, you know, and they weren't. I mean, heck on yeah, the they got to bend down to get them. <laughs> yeah they're stepping on them yeah yeah it was it's funny amazing that is awesome well marcus thank you so much i appreciate your yeah. time and yeah it's been a lot of fun i, really I appreciate think... you guys inviting me yeah if you get a, a burning feeling and you're passing through tennessee let me know and i'll i'll let you go light something on fire for us okay well uh, i might take you up on that <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you thank all you right, for your time you. yeah merry christmas yes, to sir. you guys you as well all right goodbye all right man that was that was Excellent. good stuff i gotta tell you you were like rapid fire q a with him the whole time you i got, mean yeah need, you got need to send me a bill <laughs> you got jacked up and you were on a roll so 
I was like, hey, I got I got the guy that I need to talk to on the line. Yeah. I got to get everything, you know, you know, maybe get an hour out of him before he starts wondering if they're ever going to let me off here. So I'm like, hey, what, what about this? What about that? Should I burn that tree or this one? I, I should have had pictures to send him. Yeah. Yeah. You know? That would have been, been good. <laughs> should I burn this? Yeah. You know, he's sounded yeah, open to maybe taking a trip up there. You should call him and invite him turkey hunting. Yeah, well, heck, if he likes deer hunting, I'll just let him come over here and roast a bunch of deer and help me on the farm. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be the way to do it. Yep. Great guy. Very, very intelligent, as you guys could tell, but just a wealth of knowledge. And I thought the information about burning hardwood stands mm-hmm. was pretty darn interesting because it's just not something we hear or read a lot about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested in that article he he referenced that's coming out soon in yeah. the Deer Magazine. Yeah, so that'll be interesting. And and y'all go check him out on Instagram. He's always posting stuff that's really good for habitat management for your properties. And so you'll you'll like that stuff. And I just I love having these biologists on here or ecologists as he is. Yeah, it, it's just fascinating i think if i didn't do what i did for work i'd want to go back to school and do what they do it, it just that it fascinates me well that could be your retirement plan they, <laughs> i like it yeah i like it yeah. well cool so we well, good deal, got the favor yeah. that we covered and what do you say we wrap this thing up let's wrap it up all right thank you guys so much for tuning in this week we know that you have choices we appreciate you spending your time with us we hope you have a wonderful week and Look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.